The life of David can be divided into three sections. 1 Samuel chapters 16 through 31 recount his rise to prominence and his flight from Saul. 2 Samuel 1 through 10 records his return to Israel after the death of Saul and the subsequent consolidation and expansion of his kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 24, tonight's chapters, describe how David's sin and failure threaten his kingdom. To sum it up, David is a fugitive. He's also a fighter, but he also experiences some failure. Indeed, David was a man after God's own heart, but David, like all men, stood on clay feet. He was a man of human frailty. He was prone to mistakes, just like you and me. To sum it up, 1 Samuel 16 through 31 records the trials of David. 2 Samuel 1 through 10, the triumphs of David in tonight's chapters. 2 Samuel 11 through 24, the troubles of David. It all begins in chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle. Now, after being cooped up all winter, every king needs a battle or two to get the juices flowing again. To shake off the cabin fever. And David should have gone out to battle, but instead he sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But look, David remained at Jerusalem. David decides to sit this battle out. He goes on spring break. Hey, for 17 years, David has ridden a string of unprecedented success. He's had the Midas touch militarily. Every battle his army has fought, he's won. Hey, David, you've been working hard. Why shouldn't you take a vacation? David, you need a little R&R. David, drop your guard. David, chill out. Enjoy the fruits of your labor. But look what happens in verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof... He saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, the Bible doesn't address why Bathsheba is on the roof of her house in full view of the king's palace bathing in the buff. Obviously, we can assume that she shares some culpability in this crime. But if David had been doing what God had called him to do, this incident would have never occurred. It's been said the devil tempts all men, but idle men tempt the devil. Hey, we do need some downtime, but only to refresh our upward look. It's one thing to take a break. It's another thing to take a break from God. And apparently that's what David did here. I'll tell you one thing. You can be sure Satan will never take a vacation. He works perpetually. And we need to always keep our guard up. Eternal vigilance is the key to spiritual victory. Now, I'm sure that David started to rationalize. He saw this woman bathing. And he started to think to himself, man, she is so beautiful. All I want is an up-close look. We'll just talk. We'll send down to Starbucks for some coffees. You know, we'll just sit around and... You know, we can even pray. Oh, maybe I can lead her to the Lord. Yeah, it must be God's will that the two of us get together. Understand, it's not the look that brought David down. It's what took place after the look. The look was innocent. The surge of manly feelings that came with that look also were innocent. Hey, he saw a beautiful girl. Probably healthy for that surge of masculinity to kick in. But it's what took place after the look. That's what got him into trouble. The rationalizations, the justifications. It seems controlling one's thoughts these days has become a lost art. We're still a moral enough people to frown on certain actions. But many people today think it's okay to fantasize about whatever they might choose. Guys, God is just as concerned with what we think as he is how we act. In fact, more so. For he knows that our thoughts will ultimately determine our actions. Proverbs 23, verse 7 says it well. 
For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. That's true of you. That's true of me. It's been said, promiscuity begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. David should have controlled his thoughts. I heard of a man who worked in an office full of gorgeous women. And he kept a nail in his pocket as a reminder. One day someone asked him, hey, why do you carry around that nail? And he answered, well, I've learned a lot from the nail. Its head keeps it from going too far. If you'll use your head, if you'll think, if you'll control your thoughts, you'll save yourselves a lot of problems. It might have helped if David had kept a nail in his pocket. Instead, we're told in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. David has now committed adultery with another man's wife. The deed has been done. It can't be undone. And its consequences will remain with David forever. F.B. Meyer writes in his biography on David, one brief spell of passionate indulgence, and then his character blasted irretrievably. His peace vanished. The foundations of his kingdom imperiled. The Lord displeased. And great occasion given to his enemies to blaspheme. So much lost. In one solitary slip-up, one moment of indiscretion can topple a lifetime of achievement. My mama used to say, Sandy, it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation, but only one moment to tear it all down. And David will pay for this one-night fling for the rest of his life. This one-night fling became a lifetime thing. Of course, that's not what David initially thought. He assumes that come morning light, all will be forgotten. Life will be back to normal. But then the news comes to him. Verse 5 says it. The woman conceived. And so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Uh-oh. That wasn't supposed to happen. But it did. Now David has a real problem on his hands, and he has a choice to make. He can do one of two things. He can confess, or he can conceal. He can admit his sin, or he can try to cover it up. I read recently about a new product that's out on the market. It's called Audio Ally. And for $9, you can buy a cassette tape with various background noises on the tape. A dentist office, an auto garage, an airport and other miscellaneous noises. Nine noises in all. The purpose of the tape is that this is a tape that you can play when you call your employer to tell him that you won't be to work that day. Just put the tape on in the background. And the noises will substantiate the lie you tell him to excuse yourself from getting into work. Well, boss, I'm fogged in in San Francisco today, and I won't be back until tomorrow as the airport and the airplane noises all are going on behind you in the background. It is amazing the extremes to which a proudful person will go to cover up their sin. And nowhere is this better illustrated than in the example of David. He commits adultery. But hey, he adds to it deception and betrayal and eventually murder in his attempts to cover it up. First, he calls Bathsheba's husband Uriah back from the front lines. David figures Uriah will go to bed with his wife, and nine months later, everyone will think that Bathsheba's baby belongs to him. But Uriah is a noble man. He's too loyal to enjoy hot passion with his wife while his men remain in the heat of battle. David tries to loosen him up the next day by making sure he gets plenty of the king's food and wine. But even after Uriah gets loaded, he stays devoted to the troops. The next day, David sends Uriah back to the battle with orders from Joab for Joab. And in verse 15, we're told what David wrote. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Can you believe it? General Joab complies and Uriah dies in the battle. Bathsheba wears black for a few days. 
shed some crocodile tears, ends up marrying the king, and David thinks the whole sordid ordeal has been swept under the rug. He's been successful. He's covered it up. There's only one problem. Look in the last verse of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Only one problem, David. Hey, you can pull the wool over the eyes of your pastor, over your friends, over your spouse, but you can't fool God. You never can. Luke 12, verse 2 tells us, There is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. In chapter 12, the Lord sweeps back out what David had swept under the rug. The Lord sends the prophet Nathan to King David with a parable. Here's how the parable goes. A rich man entertains a guest. He's a shepherd and he wants to serve lamb chops for dinner. But instead of killing one of his thousands upon thousands of sheep, he goes to his pure, poor neighbor and he takes his neighbor's one ewe lamb. It's an extreme act of injustice and cruelty, and it infuriates David when he hears it. And we're told in verses 5 and 6, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And then Nathan points his long, bony, prophetic finger right in David's face. And he says in verse 7, You are the man. You took the you. And suddenly the truth cold cocks David right in the jaw. The Lord speaks to David through Nathan. And basically, he says, look at all I have given you. Verse 8 puts it, and if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. He is accusing David of thanklessness. You wouldn't think that would be David's chief crime, would you? But I believe behind every sin, there is in reality a spirit of ingratitude. God is so good to us. How dare us thank Him by being disobedient? The best deterrent to sin, in my opinion, is a heart overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving. The more grateful you are to God for all that He has done for you, the more you'll want to live a life pleasing to Him. Here's David's punishment in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you, From where? From your own house. It's a heavy penalty. Because David breaks up Uriah's family, God will break up David's family. Adversity, a sword, will come upon his house. In verse 13, David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. A fuller account of David's confession is recorded in Psalms 32. 38 and 51. You might want to jot those down and look them up later. Here, Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Guys, understand, God will always forgive our sin if we come to Him with a repentant heart. But forgiveness of sin doesn't automatically remove all of sin's consequences. I've seen people who come to God hoping to walk away scot-free. Their desire is to shirk responsibility for what they've done. But proof of genuine repentance is the willingness to own my own sin. To take responsibility for what I've done and its aftermath. You can tell a repentant person because they say, Lord, forgive me and then help me repair the damage that I've done. This is true repentance. 
The cost of David's sin was the death of his son. And in verse 15, we're told, And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. Notice the writer doesn't say Bathsheba. He says Uriah's wife. I think he's making a point there. David mourned the child's sickness. But as soon as he's dead, David arises. He changes clothes. He worships the Lord and he orders dinner. In other words, it's time to move on. When asked about David's amazing transformation, David, you were mourning while your son's sick, but now that he's dead, you're, you're moving on. What's the deal? David tells them in verses 30, 22 and 23, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he shall not return to me. And notice here David expresses his belief that a young child who dies before he has the opportunity to express his faith in Christ is destined for heaven. That's what he says. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And if you've lost a child, a young child, as much as you want him back, realize that he or she is with Jesus, that they're in a better place. And if you're in Christ, there's a sweet reunion in your future. Now, God eventually blesses the marriage of David and Bathsheba. That's amazing to me. Yes, sin has its consequences, but once dealt with, God can even take sinful circumstances and turn them into good. God blesses this marriage. They have a second son. His name is Solomon. And in verse 24, we're told, and it's really a gracious statement on God's part, now the Lord loved him. In fact, he receives a new name, Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. I wanted to name Zach Jedidiah, but Kathy won out. Zach's really glad of it. Solomon grows up to be David's successor, the builder of God's temple. God blesses the offspring of David and Bathsheba. To me, that's an amazing act of God's grace and his mercy. In the last of chapter 12, David does what he should have done all along. He goes to battle where a king belongs in the springtime. And Israel wins a victory over the Ammonites and David leads the charge. But David's one night stand with Bathsheba was witnessed by his older kids. And apparently because of it, they lost respect for their dead. And David was never able to win back that respect. It seems that David's sin destroyed the moral underpinnings of his family. And you begin to see a family gutted of virtue, abandoned of morality, in the sordid story that is recorded in chapter 13. Now understand, David had many wives, and so the palace was filled with half-brothers and half-sisters. Sort of like the Brady Bunch. David had a blended family. And there were problems in this blended family. In fact, the only battle David ever failed to win was the battle with his own kids, rearing his kids, you see, David had a daughter named Tamar, which means the palm, and apparently she was tall and slender. She had a model's figure. And Tamar caught the evil eye of a half-brother named Amnon. Amnon was David's old, oldest son, but Amnon was a real sicko. He lusted after his half-sister. It was an immoral desire forbidden by God's law. And Amnon pursued it. He even plotted his moment, even involved his dead in the plot unknowingly. He pretended to be ill, and he asked David to send Tamar to prepare him some food. It's really in an indictment against David that no red flags went up, that David was so aloof from his family that he didn't know the heart of his kids. He didn't know what was going on in his own household. Amnon lured Tamar into the bedroom, and he raped her. And when the deed was done, he treated her with disdain. Verse 15 says, Amnon hated her exceedingly so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. 
Notice that, girls. Amnon uses Tamar to gratify himself sexually. And does it cause him to love her more? No. It causes him to lose respect in her. And he treats her like a piece of trash. Girls, that's what will happen to you. If you give away your purity for a boy to use it up on his own sexual gratification and his own predatory instincts, he won't love you more. He'll disrespect you. He'll throw you out like a piece of trash. Amnon pleads and promises and tells her that he loves her until she gives in, or until actually, in this case, he forces her. And once he gets what he wants, he throws her away. That boy never loved you. He just wanted to use you. And Amnon did to Tamar what gets repeated thousands of times every Friday night. And it's a shame. Now, David had given all of his virgin daughters a robe of many colors. Apparently, it was a symbol of their purity. And so when Tamar's brother Absalom found his sister crying convulsively, her robe torn, ashes on her head, he knew what had happened. And a deep hatred of Amnon filled Absalom's heart. And worse, a simmering, stewing, seething bitterness toward his father began to develop as well. You see, why didn't David step in and punish Amnon? Why didn't he stop him to begin with? And then after the fact, why didn't he punish him? Did he know of Amnon's crime? Was he daddy loof? If he didn't know, why didn't he know? I believe that David knew what happened. But I believe that David was so riddled with his personal guilt over his own sexual failure that he had a hard time punishing the same sin in his son. Notice verse 23. And it came to pass after two full years... David had two years to deal with Amnon, but nothing happened. And Absalom had a right to be mad at his dad. It's a parent's job to provide spiritual and moral direction for the family. And when a parent sends contradictory signals or becomes paralyzed by their own guilt, chaos and confusion will reign among their kids. Resentments will form. Parent, if you've made a mistake in the past, get over it. Get God's forgiveness and get over it. I tell my kids every day, if they don't end up better than me, I'll be disappointed. I've got higher hopes for them than my life. I want them to go further than me, go higher than me. And if we've made mistakes in the past, we can't let it cripple us to discipline our kids today and point them in the right direction and spur them on and lead them on. Absalom had a right to be mad, but he had no right to do what he does next. He hosts a party and he orchestrates the murder of his brother Amnon. And Absalom flees to Gezir, southeast of the Sea of Galilee, and he remains in exile three years. In chapter 13, verse 39, we're told, King David longed to go to Absalom. Why didn't he? He's the king. He can do what he wants. Why didn't he? To me, it seems that David was too weak to discipline his kids, but then once they failed, he was too proud to forgive them. He didn't want to take responsibility for his parenting on either end. And we need to be just the opposite. We need to be strong enough to discipline and lead, then humble enough and loving enough to forgive them if they stray from the path. Absalom's action had brought shame to David, and publicly David is spouting a hard line toward Absalom. But Joab, David's friend in general, he knows the king's heart. He knows how much he loves his son, and he comes up with a plan to tug at his heartstrings and get him to receive Absalom back. A woman from Tekoa comes up with a story from Joab. And it's the exact situation that David is facing with his two boys, and the answer is to bring the banished son home. And verse 14 contains a powerful truth. It really underpins our salvation. There she makes the comment, Yet God does not take away a life, but He devises means 
so that His banished ones are not expelled from Him. Isn't that beautiful? God devises means to bring His banished ones home. That's what the gospel is all about, guys. It's the means by which God has devised to bring about our forgiveness and reunite us with the Father who loves us and cares for us. In verse 24, Joab goes to Gezir and brings Absalom home at David's request. But the reunion is still incomplete. For the next two years, a stubborn David refuses to see his son face to face. And Absalom doesn't understand it. David, why won't you come and see me? You've brought me back. Why are you still unwilling to establish a relationship? Absalom concludes that he'd be better off back in Jazir. And he tells the king through Joab, Hey, execute me or embrace me. Do one or the other, but just don't leave me in limbo any longer. Absalom is tired of his father treating him like a political football. He wants his dad's acceptance. All sons want that. They want their father's acceptance and love. All of God's kids want that. We desire that. It just takes us a while to realize that God is a place where we can find it. That our Father loves us and cares for us. Finally, in verse 33, David calls for Absalom. And the Father and the Son are united. But chapter 15 reveals that it's too little too late. David's harsh treatment of Absalom has already sowed the seeds of rebellion in his son's heart. And in chapter 15, verse 6, we're told, So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Here's what Absalom did. He stood in the gate of the city, and he started to handle the lawsuits before they came to the king. And when the people approached, Absalom would tell them, Oh, the king's too busy for you today. You know, the king's important. He, he's gotten to the point where he can't see you common people anymore, but hey, I love you. I can help you. Just come to me. And Absalom begins to steal the hearts of the people. He turns the hearts of the people from David to himself. In addition, we're told in chapter 14, verse 25, that Absalom was handsome. He had this long hair. The women loved it. He also had a beautiful daughter. The men loved her. And Absalom named his daughter, any guesses? Tamar. You see, he never got over that rape of his sister. Chapter 14, verse 26 tells us that Absalom got his hair cut once a year. And his annual growth of hair weighed 200 shekels, or about six pounds. So obviously he had thick, bushy hair as well as long hair. And so you can kind of think of it this way. The younger Bush is out by the gate stealing the loyalty of the people away from the older President Bush who's up in the palace. Absalom's subtle betrayal culminates in Hebron, the site, by the way, where the people anointed his father as king. And there Absalom reveals his intentions to take over the throne from his father. And all Israel shouts... Absalom reigns in Hebron, and the shout goes out all over the land. And in chapter 15, verse 12, we're told that David's trusted counselor, his advisor, Ahithophel, joins the coup d'etat. David refers to Ahithophel in Psalm 41.9 and 55.12-14. And read along with me with this. Even my own familiar friend, that was Ahithophel, a familiar friend, in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Boy, there's nothing quite as hard to take as the betrayal of a friend. He says, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has magnified himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. We worship together. And yet you've betrayed me, Ahithophel. Ahithophel was wise. He was skillful. But like Absalom, he was bitter. And his family tree reveals why. 
If you'll go back and look at 2 Samuel 23, verse 34, and piece that together with chapter 11, verse 3, you'll find out that Ahithophel was none other than Bathsheba's grandpa. And apparently, he never got over what David had done to Bathsheba and her family. Bitterness finds a buddy, and Ahithophel joins the revolt. In chapter 15, verse 13, news of, of Absalom's insurgents reaches David. And he's told, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David knows that Absalom now has the momentum, so he decides to flee Jerusalem and regroup out in the Ju- Judean desert. And so David leaves behind Zadok and Abathar, the priests, as informants. And when he hears that Ahithophel has joined Absalom, he prays that God will defeat Ahithophel's counsel because he knows that Ahithophel is smart and wise. And if Absalom listens to him, David is in trouble. In fact, he even sends another friend, Hushai, back to Jerusalem to do a little espionage. And Hushai joins the revolt and works to frustrate Ahithophel's counsel. In chapter 16, there we have recounted two encounters that David has on his way out of Dodge as he leaves Jerusalem and climbs up the Mount of Olives on his way to the wilderness. The first man he meets is Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, who offers David provision. But then he meets a man named Shimei, who offers David derision. He starts cursing the king. And Abishai, David's strong man, wants to shut him up permanently. But David allows the man to curse. And he leaves it up to God to settle the issues. This was an awful day. This was the day when David was forced to leave the city of David. It was terrible. It was a day of humiliation for the king. Here was a man who had been Israel's champion. And yet now Israel was treating him like a chump. And to make matters worse, a vile man follows him, hurling rocks at him and insults as the procession climbs the Mount of Olives. It was a bad day for David. And as David feared, Ahithophel is shrewd. He knows how to engineer this coup. He first advises Absalom to take his father's concubines into his own royal harem. And this bold public act of insurgence and rebellion fuels the flames of the revolt. Then Ahithophel tells Absalom to strike while the iron is hot. While David is on the run, he wants to take 12,000 troops and attack David before he has time to regroup. And if Absalom had followed Ahithophel's advice, it might have been curtains for David. But that's when Hushai speaks up. And God uses the advice of Hushai to counter the advice of Ahithophel. And God causes Absalom to take Hushai's advice, the wrong advice. You see, Hushai knows that David is discouraged and he needs a little time to strengthen himself. And so Hushai poses another plan. He warns Absalom that his father is real mad and he knows how to fight in the wilderness. You remember, he spent a lot of time out there. And if he faces David now, a difficult battle will sap his momentum. He says to Absalom, it's better to wait until you can build up your numbers. And then you can descend upon him like the dew settles on the ground. Well, in chapter 17, verse 14, God causes Absalom to take Hushai's counsel in order to defeat him. And in verse 23, we see Ahithophel's reaction. When Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. Understand, this man was so bitter that he would rather die than to see his desire for revenge go unfulfilled. Do you realize that bitterness, if you allow it to grow, will become so strong, such an animal, that it will consume you? 
Bitterness is a poison that does far more damage on where it's stored than where it's poured. Guys, we learn from Ahithophel that unresolved bitterness can take a destructive hold on our lives. That's why we need to deal with our bitterness. Get rid of it. Love and forgive. Bury the hatchet. In chapter 18, the showdown occurs. David divides his men under three generals. And he gives them but one command. Verse 5, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Here the heart of a true father comes out. Despite how his child's rebellion has broken his heart, he still loves Absalom. Guys, understand, this is not only David's heart toward Absalom. It's God's heart toward you. How many times have you been an Absalom? Have you rebelled against the Lord? And yet the Lord says, deal gently for my sake. With you, with me. David's men trounce the rebel army and Absalom's death is recorded in chapter 18, verses 9 through 18. Absalom was riding a mule through a heavily wooded area with low-hanging limbs. And that's when his long hair got caught up in the limbs and it threw him off his mule. And Absalom was left hanging, it says, between heaven and earth. His hair was caught in the branches. It was a hairy ordeal, a hair-raising experience. His destiny was up in the air. He was really up a tree. And the first man to reach him refused to kill him. Why? Because he recalled the king's command. That's when Joab came up. Joab, this brutal man, and without slightest hesitation, he grabs three spears and he thrusts them through Absalom's heart and his ten armor bearers finish off the job. And when David hears the report, rather than rejoice in the efforts and outcome of his troops, he begins to grieve and mourn over his son Absalom. And it spoils the people's celebration. And Joab finally has to come to David in verse 6 and rebuke him. He says, you love your enemies and hate your friends. The way David is acting, it seems that the king would rather see the men fighting for him die than his rebel son. And he warns David that if he doesn't show some gratitude for the people's loyalty and efforts, his supporters will abandon him. In chapter 19, verse 14, the elders invite David back to reign over Israel. And he's greeted by the people at Gilgal as he crosses the Jordan River. In essence, it's David's second coming. Understand, Jesus, the son of David, will also have a second coming. Like David, Jesus was run out of town. He was rejected by Israel. He was betrayed by a friend named Judas, his Ahithophel. And he was crucified by the rebellious hearts of all men. But one day Jesus will return to conquer his enemies and he'll come up to Jerusalem to sit upon his eternal throne. It's interesting, as David returns, guess who he meets? Shimei, the guy who gave him such a difficult time when he was forced to leave. And again, Abishai wants to permanently shut him up. But David instead decides to forgive him. David is so prophetic of our King Jesus. Even though the Jews hurled insults at Jesus when he stood before Pilate, and as he carried the cross to Calvary, one day they'll repent, and Jesus will offer his forgiveness to them. David also meets Mephibosheth. And he gets a different story this time of why he stayed behind. Early Aziba, Saul's former servant, had said that Mephibosheth had joined the revolt. But Mephibosheth says that he was tricked by Ziba and left behind. You remember he was lame in his feet and couldn't walk. David doesn't really know who to believe, and so he split Saul's inheritance between both Mephibosheth and Ziba which proves what every marriage counselor already knows. There are always two sides to every story. <laughs> and sometimes it's difficult to tell who's actually telling the truth. In chapter 19, David also blesses the house of an old man, Brazelier, 
And this was the man who supplied David food and drink while he was in exile in Mahanaim. And at the end of chapter 19, a squabble erupts between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah over who should escort David to Jerusalem. Isn't that funny? Just a few months earlier, they all wanted to escort him out of town. He left in disgrace. No one claimed David. Ah, the fickleness of the crowd. You understand you can't please everyone. You know that, don't you? You need to remember that tomorrow when you go to work. Few people stood with David during the tough times, but now that the bandwagon is rolling again, it's all aboard. And the little rift at the end of chapter 19 erupts into another rebellion in chapter 20. A man named Sheba balks at the tribe of Judah's claim to David and organizes his own revolt. Now David is still upset with Joab for killing his son Absalom. And so he appoints Amasa, Absalom's general, over his army to pursue Sheba. But in the pursuit, a travesty occurs. Joab drops his knife on the ground and then approaches Amasa. Quickly picks it up and he thrusts it in Amasa's stomach and leaves him in the middle of the road wallowing in his blood. This was a cold-blooded, unwarranted, brutal murder, an injustice, an arrogant act of power-grabbing on the part of Joab. And when the people approached and saw him there in the middle of the road, they halted. They stopped. But notice what happens in chapter 20, verse 13. There we're told, when he was removed from the highway, all the people went on after Joab. Isn't that interesting? In other words, out of sight, out of mind. This is why abortion is still legal in this country. It's the invisible crime. No one sees the victims or their torture. I guarantee you if the woman's womb was transparent and you could see that baby growing inside, no one would even think of abortion. It seems that in our country, if an injustice doesn't make the nightly news, people will forget it ever occurred. When an issue gets swept out of sight, people neglect it. They go on their way, just like they did here. Out of sight, out of mind. Those people should have remembered. They should have looked over and seen Amasa off the side of the road, bleeding. It was just as much a crime over there when the evidence was pushed over there as it was in the middle of the road. We can't neglect that. We can't just march on our merry way just because we can't see an injustice. A woman in the city of Abel makes a deal with Joab. He agrees to spare the city if she delivers Sheba, this rebel. And she promises in chapter 20, verse 21, Watch! His head will be thrown over to you over the wall. And once again, David's enemy is defeated and David gets ahead. I'm telling you, more heads roll in 2 Samuel than bowling balls on Friday night. Chapter 20 ends with a listing of David's cabinet in the later years of his reign. Now, chronologically, 2 Samuel ends with chapter 20. The last four chapters sort of form an appendix to the book. They provide a few flashbacks that fill in the record. Chapter 21, for example, lets us know how David rectified one of the sins of Saul. When Joshua led Israel into Canaan, he made a covenant with the Gibeonites. Saul, though, ignored Joshua's covenant and tried to wipe out the Gibeonites. And God takes his promises seriously. He takes vows seriously. And because Saul didn't, Israel suffers a famine for three years. David asked the Gibeonites, what will it take to amend Saul's sin? And they ask if they can slay seven of Saul's sons. 
And David, no doubt, chooses seven deserving of death, and he turns them over to the Gibeonites, and they kill their these sons, and they leave their bodies for the vultures. And that's when one of Saul's concubines stands guard over the bodies, and it sort of shows a respect for Saul's household. And Rispah stirs David's respect for Saul, and it causes him to give Saul and Jonathan a proper burial in their family tomb. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, when David fought Goliath, we remember that he picked up five smooth stones from the brook. And have you ever wondered why five smooth stones? Well, we learn why in chapter 20, verse 22. There we read that Goliath had four brothers. David wasn't worried about missing. He just wanted enough ammo for the whole family. Which brings up those five smooth stones. I love this little poem. Listen closely. Five little pebbles lay in a brook. Five little pebbles hidden in a nook. What are we good for? One said to another, little or nothing. I'm thinking, my brother. Wearing away day after day, it seemed that forever these pebbles must stay. If they were flowers ever so gay, surely someone would take them away. Or if they were big stones that builders could use, then some builder those big stones would choose. Wait, little pebbles, rounded and clean. Long in your loneliness, lying unseen. God has a future waiting for you. Five little pebbles, sturdy and true. Five little pebbles hidden a brook. David came down and gave them a look. Picked them up carefully out of the sand. Five little pebbles lay in his hand. Hark! There is shouting and fighting today. And boldly these pebbles are born to the fray. One of them chosen, put in a sling. Would we have thought a stone could thus wing? Onward it sped. With a might not its own. Onward it sped by a shepherd boy thrown. Swift as an arrow. Straight as a dart. For the whole nation that stone did its part. Striking the giant's great terrible head. Laying him low. A mighty man dead. Five little pebbles found in a brook. Mentioned with honor in God's holy book. You are a pebble. Contented and low. Ever kept clean. By his spirit's pure flow. Hidden and ready. Till Jesus shall look and choose you and use you a stone from the brook. Isn't that neat? If God can use a little pebble to win a great victory, then certainly He can use you and He can use me. On several clashes with the Philistines, David and his men ended up fighting giants. Verse 20 mentions a Philistine giant with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Can you imagine shopping for gloves? Her ladies finding a pair of shoes that fit. Verses 15 through 17 describes a near miss with a giant, a Philistine freak named Ishbi Binob. Found David utterly exhausted. David was dizzy. He was on the verge of fainting. When Abishai came to his aid, defended him and killed Ishbi Binob. And afterwards, everyone warned David to no longer go into battle. For as they put it, lest you quench the lamp of Israel, no one wanted to lose their leader. And perhaps it was this insistence that caused him to stay home back in chapter 11 and set him up for that fatal affair with Bathsheba. You know, the irony was that David was safer in the will of God fighting giants than he was outside the will of God at home idle. Our worst enemy is not the giant that comes against us. It's the sin that lies within us. Now, not all the Psalms are in the book of Psalms. We find a Psalm here in chapter 22. It was written during David's fugitive years in response to the many times that God had delivered him from his enemies. He says in verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. I love his conclusion in verse 4. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Now, did you hear that? That is the heart of worship. Yes, God promises many things when we worship Him. He promises to inhabit the praises of His people. The Holy Spirit reveals Himself to us when we worship. Yes, worship and warfare go together. When we worship the Lord, we drive the devil nuts. Yes, there's a peace and joy that comes to us 
when we're worshiping God. Yes, the praises of God even build our faith. There are numerous benefits that come to us when we worship the Lord. But don't worship Him for the benefits. That's the wrong motive. Here we find the right motive. The motive for true worship is to worship God because He is worthy to be worshipped. That's why we should worship God. Because His character demands it. Because His deeds and conduct attract it. The Lord deserves to be worshipped. David says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. That's why we should praise Him. In verses 10 and 11, David tells us, He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under His feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and He was seen upon the wings of the wind. Guys, don't be afraid of the storm. God rides to us on the storm. When the storms of life darken the sky, know that God is at work in your life. I love verses 29 and 30. For you are a lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. God is able to strengthen us with a supernatural sprint. With a supernatural spring. Whatever, it need, whatever we need, God will give us the strength. Verse 31 says, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. If you're tired of opinion and guesswork, pick up your Bible and follow a proven path. Look at verse 36. David tells the Lord, Your gentleness has made me great. You'll never see a bullwhip in God's hands. God doesn't crack the whip. God doesn't drive. God draws. He nurtures. He loves. His gentleness makes us great. Reminds me of the Israeli tour guide who was driving his group down the road and he told them that you would never see a shepherd driving his flock. The shepherd always leads his flock. But as they passed by, they saw a man with a stick who was beating the sheep down the road. And a passenger asked the guide if he had been mistaken. Here's a man driving his sheep. The guide answered, yes, but that's the butcher, not the shepherd. God is gentle with us. Satan drives. Satan pulls out the whip. Satan is a cruel taskmaster, but not God. God is gentle with us. He tenderly nurtures. He lovingly leads. Don't you love him? Don't you love him for it? Verse 37 is also a wonderful passage. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. In other words, God cut me some slack. Rather than expect perfection on my part, He gave me a margin for error. Rather than expect me to toe the line, God wanted me in His will enough to sort of enlarge my path. (laughs) I love that. That's beautiful. In other words, with God, I can slip and still not fall. He gives me some slack. He enlarges my path under me so that I do not slip. In other words, guys, God wants us to succeed more than we do. And He does everything He can to help us. 2 Samuel 23 begins with David's farewell speech. And then in verses 8 through 39, David lists his 37 mighty men. And apparently they're listed in the order of their prominence. Three men that are at the head of the class are mentioned first. Joshep, Bashabeth, who killed 800 men at one time. His nickname was Adino. Eleazar, the son of Dodo. I guess that could be said of my children as well, the son of Dodo. Eleazar proved to be anything but a Dodo. He was so tenacious in battle that his hand froze to the grip of his sword. I think of our sword. What is it? It's the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I believe that we need to take such a tight hold on the Word of God that our hand and our heart literally freezes around the sword. A vice grip is needed for victory. You need to grab this book and learn it and hold it tightly in your heart. Third on the list was Shammah. 
When everyone else ran from the Philistines, verse 12 tells us, he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Shammah's the only soccer player mentioned in the Bible. He defended the midfield. A lovely story of loyalty and devotion is told in verses 13 through 17. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible. At the time, David is a fugitive. He's held up at the cave of Adullam. He's reminiscing about better times. He remembers the sweet water that they drew from the well back in Bethlehem. At that time, Bethlehem was occupied by the Philistines off limits to Hebrews. But his three mighty men, Adino and Eleazar and Shammah, they go to Bethlehem. They sneak behind enemy lines. They risk their lives to retrieve a canteen of water with this sweet sipping water from this well. They bring it back to David so that he can have a drink of the water that he had mentioned in passing. And David is stunned. He doesn't deserve such a lavish display of love and loyalty. He's not worthy to take one gulp of water that was won by such sacrifice. And so David takes that water and he pours it out on the ground as a libation to the Lord or as a liquid sacrifice to God. Only the Lord Himself deserves that kind of unflinching loyalty and sacrificial love. But it does make a point. These guys really love David. They loved him with an extravagant love, with a lavish love. Their love went out of the way to show itself. I believe that's true of real love wherever it surfaces. Real love goes to lavish lengths to express itself. When was the last time? You see this in lovers. You see this in, in you know, young kids when they fall in love. We're at the ballpark this afternoon. You know how cold it was out there. And my son comes up over the, the hill and he's in his short sleeve t-shirt. I said, Nick, are you, are you cold? No, Dad, I'm not cold. Where's your jacket? Well, there's this girl back down in the field down there and I wanted to give it to her. Oh, okay. That explains it. Isn't it amazing how love causes you to do all kinds of stupid, crazy things? <laughs> I mean, you write each other's name on the, in the steam, on the shower, you know, in the bathroom, you know, and you, it's crazy. You go out, you can't afford the rent, but you go out and buy a dozen roses and, you know, you're just doing crazy things. Why? Because you're in love. Love knows no limits. When was the last time you did a crazy thing to show God that you loved Him? When was the last time you gave an offering you really couldn't afford? When was the last time you spent an hour on nothing else? You accomplished nothing. You just sat and praised the Lord. When was the last time you took a risk? You went behind enemy lines to share your faith. When was the last time you went out of your way to help a person that you know will never be able to pay you back? Real love will always go to extremes to demonstrate itself. David's second two mighty men included Abishai, who killed 300, and Benaiah, who killed some lions in the snow. The remainder of chapter 23 lists all of David's mighty men, and I want you to notice the name last on the list. It appears in verse 39. One of David's mighty men. See it? Uriah the Hittite. Which makes David's sin with Bathsheba and the subsequent cover-up so much more sinister. He was one of David's mighty men. Chapter 24 records another of David's sins. Verse 1 says, Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Now, ancient kings are like pastors today. 
They like to number their congregations. Why? Because it gives them a reason to boast. They can start bragging, oh, my church be your church. And so David orders this census. Now, there's nothing wrong with the census per se. You go back in Numbers chapter 1, Numbers 24, Moses counted the people of Israel. In the New Testament, we know that 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost. Obviously, someone was counting. We're glad they did. Counting in and of itself is not evil. What makes this census wrong, though, is that David does it out of a haughtiness and out of a pride for attitude. Counting implies ownership. You only count what's yours. And it should always be done cautiously, and it should only be done out of necessity. David, though, does it so that he can have fodder for which to boast, fuel his pride. Now, the census team has gone for 10 months, and when they return, here are the numbers. They find 800,000 fighting men in the northern tribes, 500,000 in the southern tribe of Judah. When Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt into the land, there were 603,550 men. Now, 600 years later, the number has grown to 1.3 million. The population had more than doubled. David's conscience, though, bothers him about this census. He knows it's wrong. And in verse 10 of chapter 24, he asks God to forgive him. And God does. But again, there are consequences. David still must be punished. And God takes an unprecedented step. God allows David, in essence, to pick his poison. He gives him three choices for punishment. Which one would you have picked? Seven years of famine? Three months on the run from your enemies? Or a three-day plague. Once I was caught in a fight at school and I was sent to the principal. And I got my choice. A hundred laps around the baseball field. Three-day suspension. Or three licks with a paddle. I sort of took the same approach David did. Let's get it over as quickly as we can. Took the three licks with the paddle. David took the three-day plague. But in this plague, 70,000 people die. Remember, a heavy price is always paid for a prideful, haughty spirit. I'm telling you guys, humility is a virtue we want to cultivate in our lives. When the angel of the Lord comes to destroy Jerusalem, God stops him and David sees him. And in verse 16... We're told exactly where God stopped the angel, by the threshing floor of Ariuna. And it's there that God tells David to erect an altar and to offer a sacrifice. And Ariuna is willing to give this plot of ground to David, but the king wants to pay for the parcel. And he tells us why in verse 24. And catch this. He says, I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. In other words, I'm not going to serve the Lord with scraps and leftovers. I'm not going to serve the Lord that doesn't cost me something. Rather than reserving for God our best so many times, we offer God that which costs us nothing. We throw Him our scraps. We throw Him our leftovers. God likes a costly sacrifice. We need to give God our best We need to give to God sacrifices that cost us our energy and our love and our resources and our efforts and our time. Those are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. If our gift to God is rushed or cheap or sloppy, it doesn't honor God. Doesn't God deserve better? Don't ever give God a sacrifice that costs you nothing. David paid 50 shekels for the threshing floor of Arunah. And I'm sure he didn't realize that the land that he had just bought would one day become the planet's most expensive parcel. For Ariunah's plot of ground is where God tells Solomon to build the temple. And that is where the glory will rest. The glory of God will rest on the earth for the next 500 years in the Holy of Holies of the temple on the threshing floor of Ariunah. That 
threshing floor will become the focus of heaven and earth for the next 500 years. It's interesting, even today, Ari Yunai's threshing floor is Jerusalem's centerpiece. We call it the Temple Mount, and it is still the focus of heaven and earth. One day we're told that Jesus will return and he will rule the universe from the Temple Mount, from the threshing floor of Ariuna. David bought it for 50 shekels. And it's the most expensive piece of ground on the planet. And that's where we end 2 Samuel. And we'll pick up next week in 1 Kings.